Welcome to the Seven Hills Church Podcast with Marcus Mika. We're excited you're here listening as Pastor Marcus is about to bring an incredible teaching that is sure to inspire, motivate, and lift you up. You can visit us on our website at sevenhillschurch.tv or download our free Seven Hills Church app to watch or listen to more exclusive content. Thank you for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed the message. Esther chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, and I don't really have the best title for this message, uh, but I think it's something like this. What do you do when God goes enemy shopping? What do you do when God goes enemy shopping? So, of course, if you haven't ever heard the story of Esther, I'm going to focus on one particular thing that we see existed in how God raised Esther up. Verse 1, after these events, the king honored Haman the son of that one lady and the (laughs) Agai elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. This guy was a very powerful individual. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Let's pray real quick. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray you give us just clarity, understanding, and wisdom concerning why enemies are introduced into our lives. And Father, I pray as we understand this, Father, that we would be no longer ignorant of how we're supposed to respond to those enemies. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. So again, this is a story about Esther. Again, God raised Esther up to be one of the most powerful women in the Persian Empire. But before that happened, we read about Haman who was introduced into the life of Esther. We know in the next chapter that Haman was the enemy of all of the Jewish people. He hated the Jewish people, Esther was Jewish. And you read there Mordecai who was a massive influence in helping Esther get to where she was. And so what you're seeing here is that even though God is beginning to do a work in Esther's life, there is an enemy, a significant enemy, a great enemy that's introduced into uh, her life. And as this enemy is introduced into her life, it absolutely, Haman has the ability to stop in her mind everything that God was wanting to do. Now, what you have to understand about the Persian Empire is this was a massive empire. It went all the way from Ethiopia to India, had 127 different provinces, and over those 127 provinces, you had seven specific princes, and then the king made sure that Haman was the one over those seven princes. So everything flowed through Haman. Everything that got before it got to the king had to get to Haman. So he was an incredibly powerful, powerful individual in the world. And he's continuing to be elevated. He's continuing to get new levels of influence. He's continuing to be strengthened. And Esther is watching all of this. She knows that he hates her. She knows that he wants to kill her and her people. But yet the king seems to just be allowing this guy to continue to be elevated. And so what do you do when God goes enemy shopping? What do you do when it seems like your enemy is getting the upper hand? First thing you have to understand is we all have an enemy. 
Every single person in this room has an enemy. It's not always a person. It can be the person at work. It can be the neighbor. It can be the family member. It can be the ex or not. It can be, but it can be other things. It could be an addiction that you have. It could be an area of your life where you face loss. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a marriage struggle. It can be so many different things that we face, our health issues. And I think the biggest enemy that we all have is right here called our flesh. Just reach over and just, you don't think it's an enemy, just go ahead and just pinch yourself as hard as you can. Just pinch yourself. Wait until it hurts, right? Now you see how you don't like that? It's because this right here loves to be pampered. It loves to be cared for. It loves to be nurtured. Just give it everything that it wants. Just take care of it. If it wants it, if it has a craving, give it to it. And all of those cravings of your flesh, if you just give into it, will absolutely destroy your life and could potentially take you to hell. And so you have an enemy. I want to be clear that every single one of us has something or someone working against all that God wants to do in our life. And so what do you do when it seems like that enemy, even if it's your own flesh, seems to be getting the upper hand in your life? Well, I love that Esther, the scripture here, it says that she had made it all the way to the palace. She had overcome so many things. She had overcome so many struggles. And she's finally in the palace. And you would think that now she shouldn't have the struggles that she had outside of the palace. You would think that she shouldn't have all the difficulties. She shouldn't have the same worries and concerns. Now she's in the palace. She's inside of the palace walls. The king knows her name. She has a relationship with the king. She should be safe. She should be set. She should be okay. She should, she should be comfortable and secure, but yet inside of the palace walls is where she experiences her greatest enemy. Her, her most threatening enemy is there. A lot of times Christians misunderstand what coming to Christ looks like. They begin to give their life to Christ. They surrender to God and they think that everything should be good. Everything should be settled. Everything should be safe. It shouldn't, there shouldn't be the same difficulties there were before they became a Christian. But many times your real difficulties begin after you enter the kingdom of God. Now all of a sudden you're serving God. You're, you're walking with God and you begin to experience that there's even greater enemies. You actually weren't even a threat when you were out living for the world and living for the devil and giving into everything your flesh wanted. Now you're beginning to say yes to God and you're beginning to obey God and his word. Now all of hell wants to stop you and keep you from going into the greatness that God has for you. So now you begin to realize in the kingdom of God, your enemy actually is elevating his pressure, elevating his attacks, elevating how he wants to destroy your life. And a lot of times we live ignorant of that. The Bible says once they were enlightened afterward, they endured a great deal of affliction. So we are to not be ignorant of the enemy's devices as believers. Yes, you love Jesus. Yes, you're in church on a Sunday morning. But that does not mean that you're going to have an absence of enemies. Don't be on the battlefield ignorantly. Don't live your life 
ignorant of the enemy's devices. Many Christians live their life ignorant that they are actually in a battle. You can see this through their prayerlessness. You can see this through their lack of passion for God. You can see this by their lackadaisicalness, if that's even a word, their, their laid backness. You can see it. they're so casual about everything. They, they don't seem to really be obedient to what the word of God says. It's kind of all negotiable. I, I don't really want to do that. And I can kind of do this over here. And they're on the battlefield ignorantly. But you did not jump onto a cruise ship when you became a Christian. You actually jumped onto a battleship. And the Bible says every single day you are to put on the full armor of God, which implies every day you have to wake up knowing that you, I know it's 930 in the morning or 1023 now, but in our minds it's still early. But every day you're to wake up preparing for the battle that's coming at you. Be prepared is what the scripture says. So we know that we have an enemy. With Esther, we begin to see why she has an enemy. We begin to see that before she has this enemy, she really was not who she needed to be. So enemies have a way of promoting you. So when God goes enemy shopping, the goal behind that is to bless your life. God will never bless your life and before, before first he sends an enemy to qualify you for that blessing. David would still be a shepherd boy without Goliath. And so enemies catapult you to success. Enemies can actually take you to new levels in a greater way than even your closest friends can. So enemies have a purpose. God uses them. He doesn't create them, but he will use them to take you to new levels. And so when you're in the middle of the battle and in your mind, I can't believe these things are happening to me and the bullets are flying by and the bombs are exploding and the battle is raging and you're crawling through a muddy foxhole and you're thinking to yourself, I didn't know that this is what it would be like in serving God and you're scraped and you're cut and you're cold and you're hungry and you're looking around saying, what is all of that? No, that is a sign that greatness is in your grasp. Any enemy you face, any battle you're in is just a sign that God is trying to prepare you for something greater. But we don't like that, do we? We just want the tiny little bitty enemy. Give me a small little battle. Give me a simple little enemy. I just want the smallest little fight I can have. But David would have never become who he, he is or was if God had introduced a small, tiny little enemy to David. We would never sing songs about him. We would never read the Psalms. We would never preach sermons about David. We would never have his history written on the pages of scripture if he just would have fought a small enemy. No, it was the size of that which he overcame that actually helps us get a glimpse of his greatness. So God, what he does is he chooses an enemy to match the size of your destiny. God does not look at where you are and give you an enemy to match where you are currently. No, God looks at where he wants to take you and he looks at that and he says, okay, I'm gonna introduce an enemy that size to where they're currently at. And if you serve God anytime at all, this is a very real thing. I many times can look around and say, I have the exact same enemies today I did 15 years ago. And they're the exact same size they were then, 
today as they were then. Exact same size, very same issues, very same, same situation, exactly the same. Nothing about them has changed. At that time, they were massive. At that time, they were strong. At that time, they were overwhelming. At that time, I thought I would never survive what was coming at me in those situations. Now, fast forward 15 years, 20 years, whatever, and I look back at those same enemies that were so big, same size now, but what happened is when I overcame those enemies, my life enlarged, my faith enlarged, and now I look back and I think, I can't believe I let that thing carry so much weight in my life. So God will use your enemies to increase who you are. He'll use them to take you to new levels. I love that God chooses not an enemy to match where you currently are, but to where you are going and what he wants to do in your life. The scripture there said that Haman was an agite. I think this is important as well. We're just talking about why. Why, why does God let these enemies be in our life, why does he introduce them? Well, that Haman was an Agai, if you just, try, just take that phrase Agai and, and follow the history of it, it comes from a time where the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were thirsty, they were dehydrated, they finally come upon a, a body of water, they're running down to this body of water because they're so desperate for a drink, they forget any potential threats that might exist, and they're drinking this water. They're just, they're, I mean, they're just killing this water. And the Amicalites, uh, the children of Israel were unaware of this. Amicalites see where they're at. And unprovoked, the Amicalites decide that they're going to kill the children of Israel. They're going to attack them. So Amicalites rush in on the children of Israel when they're in this, this vulnerable position. And thousands die. And God takes note of that. And he says, I'm going to deal with the Amicalites for coming at the children of Israel when they were in that vulnerable position. So years later, the prophet Samuel comes to King Saul and he says, hey, listen, God took note a while back of how the Amicalites treated the children of Israel in the wilderness, and now he wants to deal with them. So God wants you to go ahead and take them out, get rid of them, deal with them. And so Saul goes to battle with the Amicalites, destroys the whole nation, but he leaves King Agag alive, which is where you get the Agag. Agites from. He leaves him alive. As a result, an entire nation is reborn. That nation, if you'll study it, ends up coming back and attacking David, the next generation. David is out fighting in the battle, and while he's out fighting in the battle, the Amicalites come back and burn all the homes, rob them of their children and their wives. They're in Ziglag. That's because King Saul allowed there to be King Agag left him alive and it produced the Amicalites. Then you follow it even a little bit further and Saul is running from his own battle. He's desperate, he's tired. The enemy is rushing in. The enemy has overcome them. He knows if the enemy catches him, he's going to be tortured and used for all kinds of publicity reasons. And so King Saul is running and he knows if he doesn't kill himself, they're going to catch him. And so he's trying to fall on his sword, but he can't have the courage to go ahead and put all the weight onto the sword. So he sees a guy walking by and he says, hey, will you help me? I, I, I'm King Saul. I'm giving you permission to do this. I just need some assistance here. If they get to me, the torture is gonna be horrific. I'll put all my weight on the sword, but I need you to go ahead and 
push on my shoulders. Give me that little extra push I need so I can avoid the torture. And the guy says, absolutely, I got you. I'll help you do that. And so King Saul gets ready, he puts his sword there. He puts all his weight on the sword. And he says, oh, wait, 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 before you push, on, push down, he said, who are you? And he said, I am an Amicalite. And then he pushes Saul down on that sword. And the point is this, what you don't deal with in your strong times will take you out in your weak times. This is why the Bible actually says when you're younger, you're supposed to carry the burden. A lot of people think, well, when I get older, I'm gonna serve God. When I get older, I'm gonna do right. Later on in my life, I'm gonna take the addiction serious. Later on, I'll, I'll go ahead and think a little bit more about it, but not right now. But the truth of the matter is, you're never going to be any stronger to deal with that thing than you are today. And you've gotta deal with those enemies in the strong times so it gets you ready for the times you're not gonna have all the energy, you're not gonna have all the same strength that you have today. That's good preaching right there, help somebody. But sometimes I just have to encourage myself in the Lord. And we're reading here about Esther 500 years later. Generations have gone by. And guess who this is again? Stinking Agag. They're back. They didn't go away. Which helps us know why we have to deal with the enemies. It's not just for your greatness. But generations in the future are counting on you to defeat that because what you don't defeat in your life, they, the next generation has to deal with in their life. So the reason that the enemies are introduced for us is not just for our personal greatness, but God is actually trying to set up future generations. And when you beat that thing in your life, if you come from a family that faced divorce, do everything that you can to say, I don't want that to come into my, it's not that it's going to be any easier for you than it was them. It's not that it's going to be any more, and I'm not here to guilt trip anybody. If you've been through that, encourage your kids, love your kids, pass the wisdom on to them. Come on, somebody. I'm just saying there are things that you have to defeat in your life. If you don't, then you pass it on to your children and your children's children to have to deal with in their life. So future generations are counting on us to overcome those things in our life. I'm almost done. So we know who her enemy was. We know who our enemy was. We know why we have an enemy. But what do we do with it? Two things, and we're out of here. Two things that we need to learn to do with any enemy that we are facing. The first thing I would say is that if you look at David, for example, when he goes out to fight Goliath, King Saul tries to get him to wear his armor. And David puts on Saul's armor and he's about to go out to the battle and he remembers that he had no armor when he faced the lion. He had no armor when he faced the bear. And so he takes off Saul's armor and he gives it back to him and he says, King, I appreciate that you tried to help me out here but I'm just going to go ahead and trust what's got me here is what's going to take me the rest of the way. And I killed the lion and I killed the bear and I trusted that slingshot in those times and I'm going to have to trust that same tactic today. So the first thing that I think you can think about in how to deal with enemy, any, any enemy you're facing is 
to be careful not to change tactics. Be careful to not change the strategy. Because what the enemy wants you to believe is that you have to change everything. That this time it's different. This time you're in over your head. This time you can't go at it the Bible way, the godly way, the the spiritual way. This time you got to take matters into your own hands. But the same way that's gotten you the victory up until this time is the same thing that's going to give you the victory in the future. I just have certain things that have worked for me. Humility is something I just believe works. I just believe it works. I believe you don't always have to respond to your enemies. You don't always have to say anything. I just believe that works. I personally believe generosity works. I love generosity. I think it works. It's a strategy. It's a tactic that I've used ever since I was a 16-year-old little boy when I had nothing. Generosity works. Faith works. Finding out what the Bible says about any area of your life and saying, okay, God, what is your promise in this area of my life? And I'm going to count on it and I'm going to trust it and I'm going to obey you because promises are not automatic. They have to be activated by my obedience. And I believe finding those things in my home, in my health, in any area of my life, finding them, I believe the Bible works. I believe obeying his word works. I believe forgiveness works. I believe making a decision to say, God, I, I, I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to trust you. I believe attending church works, not because it's my job now, not because I'm the pastor now, but because when I got saved, all I wanted to do was be in the house of God. Not on Sunday. I couldn't wait. If they had 6 a.m. prayer, I was there. If they had youth group, I was there. If they needed someone to mow the lawn, okay, if I can be at church, I'm there. I didn't care because I believe that being planted in the house of God works, not because I'm a pastor, but the reason I do what I do is because I do believe that it works. But the enemy will tell you to change tactics. The enemy will tell you that this is a new enemy. This is a bigger enemy. But I felt like the Lord wanted me to tell Seven Hills to stay faithful to what works. If the sling worked with the bear, and if it worked with the lion, and if it worked with Goliath, then guess what? It will work with every giant you face in your life. Number two, Esther finds favor with the king and he says, anything you want, I'll give it to you. Up to half the kingdom is yours. And she says, I don't want the kingdom. I don't want stuff. I don't want riches. I want to have a dinner with Haman. I want you to prepare a meal. I'm on one side of the table and Haman's on the other side. King grants her what she wants. They prepare a meal. They prepare the table. Haman is invited. Esther is there. The king is there. So you have Esther on one side of the table. Haman, her enemy, on the other side of the table. And you have the king at the head of the table. And I love what happens in this story. She never gives any attention to Haman. She never says anything to him. She never even gives him, she, she, she doesn't focus on, she eats her meal and she talks to the king. She eats her dinner and she focuses on the king. Because she knew 
that if she focused on her enemy, if that's what she focused on, then that's what she would enlarge in her life. So she made a decision to not focus on the problem, but to focus on the one who could fix the problem. And this is the second way you deal with your enemy. You don't focus on your enemy, you focus on the king. Because whatever you focus on controls you. Whatever controls you is leading you. And whatever's leading you is in control of your destiny. Why would you give that enemy control over your destiny? And I love Esther because she teaches us to focus on the king. Don't focus on the addiction, focus on the king. Don't focus on the health issue, focus on the king. Don't focus on what you're going through, the trial or the struggle or the heartache. Focus on the king. I know it's difficult. I know it's not easy. Can you imagine being Esther knowing that Haman has built gallows and tied nooses together to kill her and her people? Those gallows were being built at that moment because he wanted to take her out and she's just feet away from him at the table and she could have said, King, I want you to kill him. King, this is what he's trying to do. She didn't do any of that. She just put all her focus on the king. And so the second thing, again, you need to do is focus on the king. If the enemy attacks you, don't have a pity party. Focus your attention on Jesus. The Bible says the battle belongs to him anyway. That the battle is not yours, it's God's. And you know, 24 hours later, after that meal, the king orders that Haman actually be killed and they hung him on the very gallows that he built to kill Esther. Which just lets us know, God knows how to deal with our enemy way better than we do. God knows how to handle those things way better than we do. The battle is his, give it to him. I'm gonna close with this story. I actually heard it from a pastor this week at the youth conference. I thought, man, I'm gonna kinda end with this because it was so beautiful, beautifully said. It's a story about a man by the name of Samuel Bringle. Samuel worked for the Salvation Army. He was on a walk one evening. And as he's on this walk, these men who are in a bar getting drunk pick up a brick and unprovoked, they just throw it, they just throw it at him. And they had such great aim, it hits him in the head and it almost kills him. He barely survives. It takes him 18 months of being in the hospital, going through rehabilitation to get back to the place where he can function in everyday life. During those 18 months, he writes a little book that ended up selling thousands and thousands of copies. People would come to him and tell him what a difference that little book had made in their life. And he came up with this phrase as how he responded to people. He said, if there was no brick, there would be no book. And his wife saved the very brick that those men used to almost kill her husband. And she engraved Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 on that brick, which means what you meant for my evil, God meant it for my good. So any enemy that's been introduced to your life, God will use it to create greatness in you. And potentially, if you handle it right, God is even using it for the future greatness of your children and your children's children and greatness to come. Do you receive that? Do you believe that? Can I pray for you?